Good morning, church. It's good to be with you after being away for a couple of weeks. I uh, left on Labor Day and drove down to Nolens for the final part of the doctoral program that I've been engaged in for uh, some s- nearly six years now. When I came to Win Baptist Church as your pastor, I had finished 10 of the prerequisite seminars for the doctoral work, and I had done it in nearly record time, about 18 months, did 10 seminars, and took the last two before I came here, so that would be out of the way. And then I think I've taken, that was in record time, I think I've taken also a record time three years before I finished the project and uh, began moving into the final phases of it. So I'm setting records left and right. And uh, we met in our workshop each day. It was Tuesday through Friday, uh, just over a week ago. And we met all day long. And then we had a good three to five hours worth of work in the library and so forth afterwards. Uh, did a quick turnaround, drove home, and went out Sunday to First Baptist Church Stuttgart. And for about a year and a half, the pastor... And I had been talking about my coming to preach and to share with the church some principles and some truths related to praying for revival. Uh, Sam Roberts is currently president of the Arkansas Baptist State Convention, and uh, he just inherited that slot when the current president left the state, and so he has a full plate as well. And, And what happened last week was really uh, an ongoing experience for me that began about a month ago where the things that I had planned to do this fall in terms of preaching and teaching I felt very clearly the Lord redirecting me wanting to say some other things and so it's been a week-by-week journey and in some cases way out of my comfort zone Uh, those of you that know me uh, I like to plan things Uh, I like to uh, plan what we're going to study through Scripture. I think you've seen evidence of that, and we study through books and series of topics, and and I believe that we're going to continue to do that. I like to study in the sense of having broken down the material so that you can take it and digest it further using fill-in-the-blank listening guides and PowerPoint and everything I can do to reinforce the message of God's Word. But he's not permitted that right now. And so each week I find myself coming to a place that is extremely uncomfortable in the sense of uh, not having those tools and pieces that are normally part of the preaching and the teaching that make it a little easier for me. And so last weekend, for example, I I went into uh, each of the services sometimes not even having the message fully formed in my own mind as we were singing the songs leading up to the, to the message. Uh, one particular case on Monday night, uh, you know, Monday we had a funeral here for Ella Taylor, sweet woman of God, and, and I came back and we did the funeral. And uh, I, when we were through, I went home and had about 30 minutes or so, an hour, to pray over that evening's message in Stuttgart. And they got in the car to drive to Stuttgart, having really three sets of notes that I just sort of grabbed and put together and stuck in my notebook. 
And as I was driving, very clearly, somewhere about the time I got on I-40, the Lord began to form in my mind exactly what he wanted said that evening. And nothing I had written down came close to what he wanted to say that evening. And so I did an ancient form of texting and got out a piece of paper and a pencil. And you're not supposed to text and drive, but I did take notes and um, got there safely. And the hour and a half it took to get there, by the time I arrived, we had a, a totally different message. Today is also an example of that. I spent part of Friday, much of yesterday, preparing what I thought was a message for today. It may be for next Sunday and, um, and several after that. But this morning, during my prayer time, very clearly the Lord redirected me to something that I, I began to address in Dr. Taylor's funeral, and I believe that the Lord wants us to take it further today. In, in the doctoral studies, one of the, uh, the seminars that I took a few years ago had to do with church revitalization. It is a very popular area of discussion and study, and if you Google it, there are all kinds of articles and that sort of thing that are out there on the topic of church revitalization. Why is that? Because so many churches have not only plateaued and are not growing, but they are in decline. And so there's great interest in that. And the Arkansas Baptist State Convention has tried to pull together some resources in that area to help churches who want to grow again. And, uh, and my, own, my own focus and, and study has been heavily over the years in the area of, of church growth. I discovered years ago that Jesus said, that he would build his church, that he is the head, and that if we are properly related to him, he will build his church. The, the most significant research that I've ever come across on the subject of church revitalization was a little book that summarized a massive research project done by Lifeway called Comeback Churches. Come back churches. And they surveyed some and did research on some 120,000 churches in the United States. That's a big number. And of that number, using the criteria that they had in their study, they found, they identified approximately 300 churches that could be classified as having been revitalized or turned around. And, and i got to pause there before I go further with the research and just point out to you something that's very, very obvious and very, very disturbing, and it should be disturbing, and that's this. If out of 120,000 churches you could only find 300 who had actually turned around, that tells you that statistically revitalization doesn't happen in North America. You do the math. 300 divided by 120,000. It doesn't happen very often. But with the 300 churches that they studied, they were trying to identify what were the characteristics they had in common. What they discovered were two things that were remarkable and that I do believe are very applicable to where we are as a church and where I think 
any church needs to be if they are serious about going forward with God. Two things. In terms of ministry, they said that prayer and a spiritual focus on the Lord and the Holy Spirit, prayer, became the number one focal point of activity in the church. Well, imagine that. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the only thing he left behind was a prayer meeting. The church didn't have a prayer meeting. The church was a prayer meeting. That's all it was. And they were waiting on God. They had the message of Christ. They had the resurrection of Christ. But they were not yet ready to go into the world until they had prayed and waited on God to come and fill them with his spirit and his power. But churches that turned around, they discovered that. The second thing that was a common denominator in all of those churches, and some of you will be very glad to hear this, they got a new pastor. Sometimes, literally, they got a new pastor. <laughs> and, and the new guy coming in brought that focus, that spiritual leadership that they needed in order to turn around and to go forward. In other cases, it was a longer tenured pastor who had in his own heart and his own life a significant encounter with God, a significant movement of God in his own life, and as a consequence of that activity in his heart, the church got a new pastor, even though he'd been there a long time. Why? Why are we so slow to pick up the book and turn to, say, the book of Acts and see the obvious right there in front of us? The Holy Spirit, He must lead. He must be in charge. He must be in control. And to address where we are, I believe strongly we need to give attention to some basic truths this morning that I hope will, will just open up a whole new understanding or an encouragement, one that you've held. Maybe you're holding it amongst other points of view about what you think needs to happen in your life right now. But I want to see if we can't eliminate all the competing answers and solutions for the difficulties and problems in your life and see if we can't narrow it down to the one thing that is true. And so I want to call your attention first this morning to the first chapter of Genesis. I told you we were going to go back to the basics. So we want to go to the very first chapter of Genesis. And this is going to answer so many questions. Uh, why is there so much pain and trouble in the world? Why is there so much difficulty? Why is there so much hurt? Why 
Is our country seemingly falling apart? Why are we so deeply divided as a nation? Why are families in trouble? Why are marriages in trouble? Why does there seem to be so little fidelity, so little faithfulness in business or marriage or family or any other aspect of of life, including the church? Why? Why is the church as a whole in North America so weak, so ineffective, And we have been this way for so long, I fear that we have settled down and we are accustomed now to living with this problem. Why? Why is my own life, you may be thinking, why is my own life coming apart at the seams? Why is my life filled with so much trouble, so much difficulty? Where where do I go? What's the first step, Pastor? Where, Where do I need to move? What do I need to understand so that I can figure out what's going on in my heart, in my life, and where I need to go. Well, to answer all those questions, we need to go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. We know that God created everything that is in the first six days of creation, resting on the seventh day. And Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 The Bible says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And right away, as we look at that, we see that God made you and I for a particular purpose. The Bible tells us that God is, in his essence, is invisible to the human eye. We know that he is all-knowing. We know that he is everywhere. He is present. There is no place I can go in the universe where God is not. We know that he is holy He is pure. He is right. We know that he does not change, that the God who was at this moment at creation is the same God who is here today among us. And as we read about creation of you and me, this was our beginning, we see immediately God's purpose in making you and me. And that is that the God who is invisible might make himself known or visible through us. Made in his image, male and female. Not perfect replicas of God, but certainly at our best, reflections of the character of God and who he is. So all along, his purpose for your life and mine has never changed never changed. It is that the God who's invisible would make himself visible through through your life and through my life. That's his purpose. That's his desire. It's never changed. So whatever else is happening in your life, that's the truth about your life. He made us male and female. And uh, in the current debates and arguments about same-sex marriage, this is something 
that's rarely discussed, rarely addressed, that together male and female reflect the character of God, have the capacity to reflect God, not because we are the same, but because we are different in our sexuality. And so it's not in our sameness that we reflect God's glory, it's in our uniqueness as a man or as a woman. And there is a way to be a man in Christ and a woman in Christ that reflects that. And so God created us that we might make him known to all creation. And then he took man and he put him in a garden. And as you look further in chapter 2, verse 16, the Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. And so we see that God's intention is that you and I would have life, abundant life. Something to live for, something with purpose, something that gives us meaning, something that is full and rich and abundant. Any tree, he wants us to live. He wants us to have life. But as we go on in verse 17, it says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. You shall not eat from the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. And we have now before us two ways to live. Two ways to live. The first way is a life where I absolutely trust what God says is true. And that if I will depend on Him and let Him do and direct with me whatever He wants to do and direct with me, I will have life. There is life. I was not made to live apart from God. I was made to live in fellowship with God, in a relationship with God, where He directs and He guides and He provides for me, and that's His intent for you. But there's another way to live, isn't there? There's a tree, knowledge of good and evil. This is another entirely different way to live. In this other approach to life, I determine for myself what's best for me. I am the captain of my own soul, the master of my own fate. I can make my own decisions. I don't need God telling me what to do. I'm in charge. And there you have the two ways of life. And every problem that you see in the world today goes back to whether a person has chosen the first way to live or the second way to live. As you and I look out in the world, it's very easy for you and I to see all the things that aren't right about the people out there. Sometimes we're very adept at seeing everything that's not right about the people in here. I've said it before. If you want to find something wrong with me, you're going to be successful. And you will not be thorough because I know even more than you do. And it's worse than you know. 
And sometimes we look at what people are doing and we look at what people are saying and we say, well, that person's problem, what I need to do is stop them from taking drugs or drinking alcohol. It's ruining their life. I look at someone else and I say, that person, what their problem is, they need to become an honest person. They need to stop lying. They need to stop cheating. They need to stop stealing from others. I look at somebody else and I say, what they need to do to get their life right is they need to stop getting in and out of all these relationships and living a, a lifestyle with no uh, restraint. And what they need to do is, is live a different way. And, and I'm thinking of all the things that aren't right about people that aren't right in the world. And I'm thinking, if I need, what I need to do is get them to stop that. And the essence of what we're here for as a church is to get people to stop those things. And you would be entirely incorrect. And you would be wasting your time. Because all of those things are only symptoms of the greater problem, and that is how that person has chosen to live his or her life. Because they have chosen to live independent of the direction of God, independent of His provision, independent of His power in His life, that's why they do the things that they do. Trying to change somebody just by getting them to stop something is like trying to cure a cold by wiping somebody's nose. All you've done is take care of a symptom for a moment, but you haven't solved anything. You haven't cured the disease. And so as the story unfolds, we come to this moment in chapter 3, verse 1. And the Bible says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And uh, you can almost hear it right away, Satan. And we know this serpent is Satan because if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, he is called Satan, the serpent of old. And it's a direct reference back to Genesis 3. So even though Satan is not named in this chapter, we know it's him. And he is, he is God's adversary. In fact, the word Satan in Hebrew means adversary. And, and he is there to oppose God. There are many questions that I have that you would have about Satan that the Bible does not give us the answers to. But there he is, chapter 3. And he is there and he comes to Eve. And look at what he says. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Completely reconstructs completely rephrases what God said. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. That's not what God said, is it? He said you can eat of every tree of the garden, but one. But Satan always is going to approach you and me with a sense that God is somehow holding out on you and that if you choose a life of living dependently on him and choosing his will, that you're going to miss the greatest joys you're going to miss the greatest pleasures. You're going to miss the greatest happinesses that life has to offer if you choose to trust him. And so Satan's always going to approach you with that notion that God is somehow holding out on you and God is, his will is not good and God, he is insinuating, is not good himself. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. God never said you shouldn't touch it. 
lest you die. And see, he's already begun to buy into his thinking that God is restrictive, that God was not gracious, that God was, in fact, difficult, hard, that his way was a loser's way. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It's a lie. She died immediately. But he said, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you and I have been there. If you've ever struggled with the will of God for your life, Satan's going to get in there and his voice is going to be loud. And he's going to be saying, Eve, are you serious? Do you really have to go back and check with God before you do anything? You're made in his image. There's enough God in you. Surely you can go and think for yourself and figure out for yourself what you need to do at this moment. Do you really have to go and check with God for everything? Do you really have to figure out what he wants for your life? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We see that later in the Gospels. We know what the answer is. But in that moment, she crumbles, doesn't she? She crumbles. She caves in. She sends Adam with her. And together, they broke God's command. And they chose the other life. They ate of the tree of that forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And in essence, they said, I don't need you, God. I can live independently of you. I don't need your direction. I don't need to depend on you with my life. And immediately, they lost so many things all at once. The first thing they lost was man's ability to relate to God. They no longer knew God. Bible at one point says that they walked together in the garden in the cool of the afternoon. I don't understand what that looks like, what that was about, but it clearly describes a relationship that was intimate. And, and he lost that. And man no longer knows God. I understand that Larry Page last week used Romans 1, and it's such a clear picture there of, of all human beings without Christ. They do not know God. And they try to make up substitutes. And, and instead of dealing with God as he is or as he's revealed himself to be, instead of doing that, we create a God that we can manage, a God that we can deal with, a God who loves everybody, lets everything go, lets you believe whatever you want to, and all paths lead to the same place. That's what we do. But Adam and every human being since then has been trying to figure out who God is and doesn't know God. You know that the essence of eternal life, you know what that is? I've shared this before. I remember I was a student at the University of Texas in engineering years ago, and I, to, to raise money, we didn't have GoFundMe, to raise money, I worked in the cafeteria, and I scrapped dishes, you know, when they came back, the trays when they came back. And uh, students were always so creative to uh, put things in their glass and their plates and everything, just make it as ugly as they could. Didn't even faze me after a while. And so I was crapping these dishes. And I remember I had this guy next to me who was a Buddhist. And uh, he was from another country. He's a Buddhist. And we got to talking. And I was a fairly new Christian. And I was talking to him. And, um, and I was sharing Christ with him. And so we're just talking about what Christians believe and what it means to follow Christ. And, and he finally asked me one evening as we're working together side by side. He says, he says Don, 
He says, tell me what heaven is like. I said, well, heaven's, heaven's great. I mean, heaven is freedom from pain, freedom from sin, freedom from sorrow, freedom from all of that. It's living forever. It's, uh, it's life the way that God wants us to live it. And he said, so it's living forever? You live forever in heaven? I said, yeah, yeah, that's it. Eternal life. And then he said this. He said, sounds very boring to me. And I knew immediately in my own heart that I had missed something. And, and it probably wasn't one or two Sundays later, we had a guest speaker at our church. And, um, and in the course of his speaking, he said this. He said, you know what eternal life is? And I, was, I looked up right away. Because I thought, he's going to tell me what I missed, and he did. He said, eternal life is defined in John 17, verse 3. Eternal life is knowing God, the one and only true God, and his Son, whom he has sent. That's eternal life. Knowing God, the one and only true God, and his Son, whom he has sent. That's eternal life. It's knowing God. And everything that you see that's broken in the world, everything that's going wrong in your life, typically those things have to do with whether or not I know God. The reason the world's in trouble, people don't know God. The reason there are wars and hatred and terrorism and people that, that want to destroy us as Christians, why? Because they don't know God. When people know God, those things are not part of their life. And so the first thing we lose is our ability to relate to God. The second thing we lose is our ability to relate to our brother. I love this. I've seen this for years, how when God came to the garden after this, the fall, Adam and Eve hid themselves. You remember that? They hid themselves. And God calls out to Adam, where are you? Not because God didn't know where he is, Right? But he called out to him because he wanted Adam to know where he was. And, and Adam says, I'm right here. And he says, I hid. I was afraid. I was naked. God said, who told you you were naked? And, um, and then this, it comes out that they'd eaten of the, of the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil. He says, you, have you eaten of that? He said, yeah, I did. And then, and then this is classic. This is classic. Adam stands before God. And he says, it was the woman thou gavest me. That'll build your marriage up, won't it? And so sin caused us to lose our ability to relate well to one another. And uh, shortly thereafter, Cain killed Abel. You know that story? And there's so much we could say about that, but Cain killed Abel. The thing that's most striking is when God confronts Cain about where is his brother Abel. You remember what Cain said? He said, who am I? He said, am I my brother's keeper? Felt no responsibility for his brother, no sense of responsibility for him, none. And that's so easy, that's where we can go. It's very easy for us to just say, well, that's their problem. That person across the street, they know we're over here. They can come on their own sometime when they get ready. I don't need to go see them. I don't need to reach out to them. I don't need to invite them in. I don't need to invite them to my Bible study group or to my house or to a cookout or anything like that. They know where we are. I've known them my whole life. I've known them since we were in grade school. I don't, I don't need to invite them. And we just don't sense any responsibility for our brother. 
The third thing that, that happens is that man lost the ability to relate to himself. Why am I here? Why do I exist? What is the meaning for my breathing here and being here? And, and that lostness has caused philosophy and other religions to grow up as people have tried to figure out why are we here? And we've lost our sense of purpose. We have no idea. And so everything that man has done to try to know God, to understand their purpose in life, has met with failure. So it, it was incumbent on God to come after us and to rescue us. And there was no man on earth, no one in the universe, no one who has ever lived outside of the first Adam who could possibly give to God what he originally intended for us to give to him. No one who could do that. No one who could reflect who God is. No one who could be a vehicle for the invisible God making himself known and revealing himself through a human life. No other man existed. So what did he do? Well, John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so he comes and God puts on skin, and he's fully human, and in that capacity he chooses, as, and the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam for a reason, He's the last Adam, and he comes to accomplish for us what we can never accomplish for ourselves. And so he's going to live a life in total dependence on the Father. And that's the thing that you need to watch about Jesus Christ. So many times we look at his miracles, we look at his teachings, we look at the things that he did and said, and we say, well, that's nothing. I mean, he was able to be sinless because he was the Son of God. He was able to overcome temptation because he was the Son of God. He was able to raise people from the dead because he was the Son of God. And yet that was not Jesus' testimony. In fact, Jesus' testimony was that I never did anything. I came only to do the will of him who sent me. And whatever I see him doing, that's what I do. Whatever he wants me to say, that's what I say. And although he was the Son of God, he was Emmanuel, God with us. And yes, he never sinned. He did that as an ordinary human being choosing to be obedient even to the point of death all the way to the cross. So to show us how to live, he forever and for every moment of his life, he depended on the Father. He lived the dependent life. He didn't use that other approach to life, the independent life, master of my own soul, captain of my own fate. He didn't do that. He said, I've got to know what the Father wants. And he retreats often. He prays. He seeks the Lord. He's all about just finding out what pleases the Father and what the Father wants. We see this particularly illustrated for us in Matthew chapter 4 during the temptation of Jesus. The very first temptation of Jesus. He's been fasting for 40 days. And the Bible says he was hungry. The Bible is always true. And Satan comes to him. And he says, if you are the Son of God, change these stones to bread. Change these stones to bread, if you are the Son of God. 
Now, what's the big deal about changing stones into bread? What is so sinful about changing stones into bread? And you can hear Satan, he's doing to him what he did to Adam and to Eve. He comes to him, he says, if you are the son of God, you know, you are God, and you've got enough God in you, you don't need the Father, you don't need to check with the Father on this, you can decide for yourself, if you are the son of God, you are hungry, you have the power, change these stones into bread. But if he had, he could not have been your Savior. If he had ever acted independently of the Father, even once, he could never have been your Savior. He would not have been qualified. He would have been no different than Adam and Eve. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And all through his life and through his ministry, and every day of his 33 years, Jesus always pleased the Father. Everything he said, everything that he did. And because he was the sinless Son of God, he qualified to carry my sins to the cross. And when they drove the nails through his hands, the sinless hands of the Son of God, they also drove, nailed my sins to the cross. Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so when the nails went through his hands, they were nailing my sins to the cross. That's not all. He was nailing my old sinful nature to the cross. So that there might be the possibility that I could live a new life. And so my sins have been carried to the cross. I can be completely forgiven my flesh, that the part of me that wants to do life without God, without Him ruling me, without Him directing me, that part has been nailed to the cross. And so then I come to a verse where Paul says it as clearly as any other place I can think of in the New Testament. He says it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, for every person that puts their trust in Christ, he comes at their invitation to live inside them. And you never have to try to be a Christian again. There's only been one true Christian, Jesus. There's only been one who's totally depended on the Father every moment of his life, Jesus. There's only one who can convey to you the mind and the heart of God, Jesus. And everything you read in the New Testament, everything you read in the book of Acts, everything that they put down on paper we say was inspired by God is because the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus Christ lived inside the apostles and lived inside those early Christians and everything they did was led by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. Over and over again in Acts, we read how the Holy Spirit spoke, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, and they heard, they recognized He was speaking, and they obeyed. What's happening? The new life 
is actually the first life made available to us again. And the God who is not visible with human eyes can now make himself known through us and make himself visible and make himself known through us. I can't do what he does. I can't produce the character of Christ. I can't. But when I walk in the Spirit, he says he will produce in you love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the character of Christ. Not because I said I'm going to learn to do this and I'm going to start learning how to love. I'm going to start learning how to be joyful. I'm going to start learning how to do these things. No. He says walk, keep in step, do life with the Holy Spirit. He will live his life through you. And the world can now see God. And you will be complete. It's why you're here. It's why you exist. It's why some of you are still here. You're wondering, why has God left me here all these years? Because he wants to make himself known through your life. And you're young, some of you starting out, why does God have me here? What's God's purpose for my life? He wants to make himself known through your life. Do you know God? Do you know him? You say, well, pastor, I go to church. I didn't ask you that. Do you know God? You say, well, pastor, years ago I walked down the aisle, took the preacher's hand, I prayed a prayer, I was baptized. I didn't ask that. I said, do you know God? Do you know him? Can you say with Paul, Christ lives in me? Are you experiencing the recreation and the restoration of life as he intended it in your heart? A life where you know God. A life where you care and you're burdened for your brother. A life where you know why you're here and I'm on a mission. And it's not just to accumulate all the toys I can get at Walmart and die in some kind of retirement home. No. God made you for himself. Do you know God? Do you know him? I'm going to ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. The pastors and I, as always, will be down front here to pray with you. And uh, you don't have to come to the front, but we have these wonderful steps here. I watched um, at another church last week where they didn't have carpet on the floors, people kneeling on hard, uh, hard, hard floor and just responding to the Lord. And uh, we have been blessed so much here as a church. And he wants to work through us as his family, his children. But the first thing that happens when God draws near is we've got to get really honest with him about ourselves. Do I know him? Do I know him? Am I confident in my knowledge of God that I know that I belong to him, that he lives in me, that he speaks to me, he leads me, he guides me through his word? I know that he's changing me because he's convicted me of certain things in my life and I've learned increasingly to be sensitive to him in those areas and he's continuing to teach me and grow me. Yes, I know God. He speaks to me. He, he walks with me. He prompts me. He convicts me. He 
He loves me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And increasingly, He wants to take you to a place where your life simply cannot be explained apart from a work of God. He has a purpose for you, a mission for you. It is unique to you. It's not for anybody else. But the purpose is the same. The invisible God wants to make Himself visible through your life. If you've never trusted Christ, you want to trust Him for the first time. If you're struggling with doubt and questions, and you need someone to help you sort it out, the pastors and I are here. We'll pray with you. We'll talk with you. We'll take all the time that you need. If you just need to pray right where you are and just say, oh God, I realize I've, I've been just as independent as I could be. You know, when you live that way, we condemn other people and their sinful lifestyles and the things that they do. But if you're living your life, making your own choices, you're determining your direction in life, you're calling all the shots, and he's not leading you, you're no different than the worst prostitute or the worst criminal or the worst drug dealer in any prison or on any street in America. No difference. God has called you and I to be dependent on him. How will you respond? Our Father and our God, thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us the truth about ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for your plan, your purpose for each of us that is sweet and precious. Father, open our eyes to see our lives from your perspective. Draw near, Father. Draw near, please. Draw near us, please. And in the light of your glory, in the light of your holiness, may we see ourselves and turn away from a life of independence and turn to you in dependence. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.